Well, good morning, church. Uh, we are going to um, transition to a time in our service where we uh, typically, traditionally, turn to God's Word. Uh, we're going to do announcements at the end of the service, so uh, you're wondering about that. That's when they will be. Um, but we turn to God's Word every week. Uh, we do that for correction, uh, rebuke, uh, teaching, encouragement, and training, uh, which I imagine most of you agree with, um, given that you are here this morning. Most churches do this every week. Uh, we do this every week. Uh, and we're going to go to God's Word today. But what I would like to do uh, today, and what we will be doing over the course of the next five weeks, um, is look at why we do this. Um, why do we go to God's Word? Why do we value this book so highly? Do we value this book so highly? Or is this uh, just some kind of superstitious tradition that uh, churches and other religions uh, do for reasons that we don't understand? Let me share some statistics with you as we jump in. Uh, these come from a Barna study that uh, was done in partnership with the American Bible Society. Um, Americans who read the Bible at least once per week. In 1991, that was 45% of the American population. In 2009, it dropped 9% to 36%. Uh, in 2016, it dropped to 33%. And of those 33%, that was made up of 49% senior adults and only 24% millennials. Um, Americans who believe there is no God behind the Bible, in 2011, there were only 10% of Americans who believe there was no God behind the Bible. Uh, but just five years later, in 2016, that number had over doubled to 22%. Americans who strongly agree that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles it teaches, 1991, that number was 46% of Americans. In 2016, it dropped to 33%. Americans that believe the Bible is sufficient for meaningful living. 65% uh, of American senior adults believe that to be true. Uh, only 56% of the baby boomer generation, 40% uh, of Gen Xers, and only 27% of millennials believe that to be true. Uh, millennials' beliefs about the Bibles. 30% uh, of them believe that it has too little influence in society, while 34% believe it has too much influence in our society. How do non-Christian millennials describe the Bible? 50% say that it's just a story. 38% uh, say just mythology. 36% that it's symbolic. 30% uh, fairy tale. And 27% say it's a dangerous book of religious dogma. And here's my, I won't say my favorite, perhaps my least favorite. Uh, how do senior pastors believe, or what do senior pastors believe about the Bible? Only 64% believe that intentional, systematized study of the Bible is an essential element of spiritual formation. And only 60% believe that in-depth education about the Bible is essential to spiritual growth. That means two out of every five pastors don't believe the Bible is significant and necessary for spiritual growth and spiritual formation. The reason we have church and growing in the church. Now, over the last four to five generations, clearly by these stats, we can see that the Bible is becoming less believed, less understood, less read, and less taught. And let me just pause for a moment to say that that does not surprise the God that we serve. He's not looking down, wondering 
I don't understand. Why are they not cherishing this book that I lovingly provided and left for them? Look at what Paul shares with Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 4. It says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul first says that Scripture uh, is the very Word of God. And because it's the very Word of God, he then charges Timothy with the same charge he gives all of us, which is to preach the Word. And that will be in different capacities, but because the Word is God's Word, we then, who know and have heard God's Word, have a responsibility to share God's Word. He then warns Timothy by saying that as you're sharing God's Word, know that there will be people who turn away from it, reject it, and teach false things about it, instead turning to things that they want to hear instead. According to the statistics we read, as well as the increasing fruitlessness of many so-called believers and so-called churches, less and less people are adhering to God's word today. For less and less people, is it the central foundational pillar of their lives? For less and less people, as it the very source of their life, for less and less people, is it cherished above all other things? For less and less people, is it obeyed with a fulfilling, deep, inner satisfaction of their soul? You see, the Bible is meant to, to shape our reality around knowing and bringing God glory. It gives us our total, complete sense of purpose that nothing in this world could possibly provide. It shapes our identity, the things we do, the things that we don't do. God created our lives to, to hinge on every word from this book. Yet for most of us, they don't. And I believe a primary reason is that we don't actually believe fully that all the words in this book are true. Because if we believe that every word in this book was true, we would tremble over the thought of not reading God's word. Yet instead, for many professing Christians, reading scripture personally and individually is an afterthought, a chore, an X on a checklist, or at best, a will-powered discipline. Let me illustrate this idea with, a, with an example. Raise your hand if you have ever received a phone call uh, from a number that you did not recognize. We'll call it a spam call. Right, just about everybody in this room. Uh, now, how many of you have been bold enough to answer said phone call? Many of you. Okay, so many of you are familiar with uh, this, this example or this idea. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that this caller, uh, and this may sound very familiar to some of you, but let's imagine this caller uh, informs you that you have a debt, right, a huge debt. Uh, but they, out of the kindness of their hearts, are not only willing to forgive you of your debt, but also offer you a, a five-day free, all-expense-paid five-day cruise. All, right, all you have to do is provide some of your personal information. Right, that's amazing, right? Uh, not so fast, right? How many of you would trust them? 
Nobody, right? None of us would do that. Uh, Why? Because we don't trust the person giving the message, right? We have no idea who they are, and we don't trust the validity of the message itself. It sounds a little bit sketchy, right? And, and, And from experience, we can probably know that that's true. But now I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you get another phone call. This time it's from your closest friend. Think about whoever that is for you. Closest friend, they call you and they say this. Hey, aren't you, or hey, you're not going to believe this, but I just won a raffle ticket at work for two couples to go on a five-day cruise. I know that you and your spouse have been struggling a bit, and, and we thought that we would bless you guys with the extra tickets. I just sent you email confirmation. What do you say? You open the email, you see the tickets. What do you do? You go, right? Right? In a vacuum, assuming it works with your schedule, assuming you've got dog sitters, babysitters, whatever else needed, you, you take them up on that. That's a, that's a pretty good deal. But what's the difference? Right? You trust the source. Right? You know them. They're your best friend. You also trust the validity of the message because you got the email confirmation. Right? So the more you trust someone and something, the more fervently and willingly and, and confidently you respond. And here's the thing. I want you to think about who that person might be for you that you trust more than anything in the world. Someone that if they asked you to do something crazy, you would do it no questions asked because of how much you trust them over the the experience you have of knowing them. Now I want you to realize that what God is offering us in his word and in the truth of the gospel is a trust that is far greater than anything else that exists in this world. No greater trust exists than in God, in the message that he communicates to us. And that's what I want us to see today and over the course of what will be the next five weeks as we look at the Bible. We're going to discuss its truthfulness, its authority, its necessity, its clarity, and its sufficiency um, so that we can believe uh, not just that it's true, but be confident that it's true. So when we finish this study, I hope you feel confident in banking your whole life around this book. I hope you put it above everything, above other books, above other religions, above friends, above what family thinks, above your own personal fleshly desires, everything. This book ought to dictate every facet of your life. So hopefully you're with me. And if you are, the remainder of today, or even if you're not, the remainder of today, is going to be an intro of sorts as we look at the truthfulness of God's word. But before we jump right in, let me give you the main point for today. And this is one of the longer main points I've had in a while. So if you're a note taker, I encourage you to write it down. Um, But know that every word in it is intentionally placed. Main point. God has beautifully and fully communicated himself to people through his written and living word, the Bible, for the purpose of making salvation known to the unbeliever and holy living known to the believer, which we can know is true. Let me say it one more time. I think it's on the screen behind me there. God has beautifully and, fi- beautifully and fully communicated himself to people through his written and living word, the Bible, for the purpose of making salvation known to the unbeliever and holy living known to the believer, which we can know 
is true. Now, I know that's a long main point, but I want you to ponder for a moment and think about its implications. The God of the universe has communicated himself to us in a beautiful and complete way, a way that offers salvation, a way that offers freedom from his wrath, which we deserve, a way that offers a gifted eternity, one that's forever joyful and glorious that we don't deserve. And then he teaches us how to live for him while we await that glorious and joyful eternity by showing us what a life of salvation looks like. And all of this communication, we can have confidence in knowing that it is true. And that last part is perhaps the biggest part of today's message is I want you to know that you can know that the Bible is true. It's not a blind leap of faith, which I'll touch on in a little bit. But first, let's begin by talking about what do we even mean when we say Bible? Uh, unfortunately, today that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so that may sound like an obvious question to you, but it's an important question nonetheless. What do we mean by Bible? Different religions, even different denominations have different, I'll call them holy books. To name a few, uh, you have the Quran, you have the Book of Mormon, you have the Tanakh, which is just a Jewish uh, Bible. It's our Old Testament. Um, even the Roman Catholic Bible is different than the Christian Bible. It includes an additional seven books, books that we believe to be heretical and non-inspired. Uh, we must make sure that we have the right Bible. For Scripture itself tells us in, in, in multiple places throughout. I'll give a few examples. Deuteronomy 4.2, you must not add to what I commanded you or take anything away from it so that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God I am giving you. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. Or Revelation 22, 18 and 19, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from them the words of this book of, his, of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life in the holy city, which are written about in this book. And so clearly, we must get this right. So all I want to do is offer just kind of an overview. We could dig so much deeper um, into this, but I want to start with what we mean by the Bible, first with the Old Testament, then with the New. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books from Genesis to Malachi, according to, to the translations that we use today. The Old Testament was originally uh, written in Hebrew, later translated to Greek, um, and then now translated to what we use today. Um, and the Hebrew Bible uh, could generally be categorized into three sections. You had the law books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books. Um, you then had the poetry or wisdom books, um, which are comprised of 13 different books. And then you had the prophets, both major prophets and minor prophets, which are comprised of 21 different books, although the Hebrew Bible kind of combined a few of those. They didn't have firsts and seconds, and some of the minor prophets they lumped together, uh, but all included. And so with that Hebrew Bible, uh, into its translation into Greek, uh, influenced the way that we have our Old Testament today. And with that, kind of gives, uh, gives two questions that I want to answer about how we've kind of arrived at the Old Testament we have from those original translations and how they're different uh, from the way other faiths um, have their Old Testament. Um, and so the two biggest questions 
with the Old Testament are, one, why is our order um, different than the original Hebrew Bible? Again, they had, I believe, 24 books, whereas we have 39, and the order of those books are also different. Um, and then secondly, why are more books included in the Roman Catholic Old Testament than in the Christian Bible? And so to answer both of these questions, I want to give a little bit of information and we're only scratching the surface here, but I want to give a little bit of information um, by turning to the, the first kind of widespread translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is referred to as the Septuagint. The Septuagint just means uh, 70. Um, it's given that name due to kind of the legend around the, the idea that 70 different Jewish scholars um, were the ones that comprised this original translation from Hebrew into Greek. And when they did this translation, they included uh, additional books for whatever reason, uh, books that we today call the Apocrypha. Um, scholars aren't sure exactly why the translation of the Septuagint included these additional books, but uh, Jews then nor Christians now recognized them to be a part of the Bible. Uh, it was common during that day to include additional um, texts, historical texts, or even religious texts um, just because of the way they translate, everything was handwritten, and so they didn't like to waste scroll space. And so even some of the most early manuscripts of the Bible had books in it that nobody ever recognized as part of the actual Bible. Um, it was often done just to, to kind of have everything on one, one scroll. And so, um, and so the New Testament um, actually helps us confirm uh, that the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament today are the same 39 books that the uh, Old Testament had of the Hebrew Bible, um, and no additional books were added. And we know this because the New Testament um, actually quotes the Old Testament. If you've read the New Testament, you've probably seen that, where Jesus will reference back to the Old Testament. Paul often references back to the Old Testament. Peter often references back to the Old Testament and gives literal quotes from the Old Testament. Uh, scholars say there's over 300 different uh, Old Testament quotes in the New Testament. And every single one of them is found in the 39 uh, books of the Bible that we recognize as our Old Testament. None of the quotes um, reference the Apocrypha or the additional seven books added to um, the, the Greek translation in the Septuagint. Uh, Jesus also confirms the three categories of the Old Testament that we mentioned earlier. Um, in Luke 24, 44, he says, uh, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So you have the law, the Psalms, or the, the poetry wisdom category, um, as well as uh, the prophets. Jesus himself mentions them. So Jesus himself affirms the same Old Testament that we use today. Uh, he also appears to have used the Hebrew Bible, not the Septuagint, which again is just that translation. Um, look at what he says in Luke chapter 11, verses 49 through 51. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. So it's kind of a small part of what Jesus says there, but he, he references Abel and then he references Zechariah, as if to say the beginning and the end, right? The first martyr and 
the last martyr. Um, but in the, the translation, there wasn't, uh, Zechariah wouldn't have been the last martyr. Uh, Abel would have been considered the first, but Zechariah wouldn't have been considered the last. Whereas in the Hebrew Bible, it actually ends with Second Chronicles, um, which is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, which is where Zechariah was killed. And so Jesus gives us reason to believe that he used the traditional Hebrew Bible, not the Septuagint, um, which would not have included those seven additional books. And so that then leads us to why um, we don't have the same order. Um, and for whatever reason, scholars, when the Bible is translated from Hebrew to Greek, we kept the same order that the Septuagint uses without recognizing the additional books that were added. So all that to say, we can be confident uh, that the 39 books in the Old Testament are the right books, um, and they're the books that Jesus himself affirms in Scripture in the New Testament. Um, and any books that are discluded or included um, is false. And so we have our Old Testament, which leads us then to the New Testament books. And this really begins with Jesus. Right? Jesus comes as the Word in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, uh, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, in John 1, 14, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And so the very word of God turned flesh. Jesus came with an authority to add to what he had already revealed in the Old Testament. Um, we see this in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 29. It says, because he was teaching them like one who had authority, right? not like uh, one of their scribes. Uh, Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words, Jesus is saying that, his words will never pass away, right? Both the words of the Old Testament and the words he's speaking now. And so Jesus, who came as the very presence, uh, the very word of God to communicate his lasting authority. However, uh, for logical, obvious reasons, Jesus would not be the one to, to write those words down. Rather, he would appoint others to write those words down in what we now have as the New Testament. Listen to how Jesus does this. In John 14, 25 and 26, says, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. A couple chapters later in John 16, verses 12 through 14, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. And so in both those passages, essentially what Jesus is saying is, I've communicated a lot to you while I've been here, uh, but I'm not done yet. Right? He says in John 14, I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you. Right? But I will send the Holy Spirit in my name. John 16, I still have many things to tell you, he says, but you can't bear them now. So he says, I'll send the Holy Spirit to communicate those things to you, guide you guiding you into all truth. And so, um, <clears throat> and so this is the primary way in which we can tell which New Testament books are the right New Testament books. Jesus is speaking these words to his Apostles. He's giving the, the 12 apostles or 11 apostles, which they'll go on to add really two later, Matthias and later Paul, um, to be the ones who usher in 
this new revelation that Jesus is promising is going to happen by the work of the Holy Spirit in the apostles. What scholars call this is apostolicity. It just means that the apostles either wrote the books or they comprehended, understood, and affirmed the books. And this includes the 27 books that we have today, the Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, and Revelation sort of falls into its own category. And so we can be confident, first and foremost, that we have the right books, and then when we talk about the Bible, that's what we mean. We mean the, the 39 books in the Old Testament. We mean the 27 books in the New Testament. No more, no less. That which was affirmed by Jesus, or, or affirmed, he affirmed the Old Testament, and then he empowered the apostles to write the New Testament. That is the Bible that we believe. That is the Bible that we hold here, the Bible that's in the seat back pews in front of you. No other Bible is the actual Bible that God has sent. And so again, that's a lot, but that's how we got the 66 books we have. No more like the Catholic Bible, no less like the Jewish Bible, no different like the Quran or the Book of Mormon. 66 books, Old Testament, New Testament, divinely inspired by God. And so now that we have the right books, um, in the right book, we can now turn our attention to the next and last question, which is this. How can we know that this Bible is true? Because right, you can believe we've got the right books recorded and kept over time, but how do we know that it is true, that what it says isn't false, that what it says isn't like the millennials say, a myth or a story or, or symbolic or made up, that it's not fairy tale. Let me first reiterate why this point is so important. God is not honored by blind faith. Right? God is honored by faith, but not faith that is completely and totally blind. He's honored when we demonstrate reason for trusting him. Let me, let me illustrate this to you with, a, with an example. Uh, this is a, a renowned modern-day theologian, often uses this, this illustration. I think it's good here. Um, imagine you're walking outside. Imagine you leave today. You're walking outside. Uh, a stranger comes up to you and says, excuse me, I have $10,000 cash in this envelope. Would you mind going to the bank down the street and depositing it for me? And you respond by asking, well, why me? To which the person says, I don't know, just kind of going out on a limb. I think I trust you. Now, would that trust speak more of your trustworthiness or that person's foolishness, right? It would speak way more of that person's foolishness. It doesn't mean you're not trustworthy. It just means that they're not honoring your, or recognizing your trustworthiness. They're doing it simply, they're doing it blindly out of foolishness. Nobody would call that person wise or nobody would call you trustworthy in that story. They would just call the other person foolish. Now imagine you're in the same situation, but this time the person says, <clears throat> excuse me, $10,000 cash this envelope. Would you mind going down the street to the bank and depositing it for me? Again, you ask, why me? To which this time they respond by saying, well, you don't know this, but I actually work for the same company as you, and I've noticed your diligence. I've spoken with your boss. He's commended your trustworthiness. A friend of mine is in a small group with you at church, and so I know you have good Christian values. I trust you. Now, does this speak of your trustworthiness? Of course it does, right? Because they have reason of why they're placing faith in you, right? They're demonstrating that your trustworthiness 
is, is worthy to be, to be had, worthy to be, to, for your trust to be placed in them, right? And, and so here's the point. God is not honored by our blind faith, right? Blind faith is really sort of a, sort of something I think we, we use a lot in Christianity today, but it's really sort of an oxymoron, scripturally speaking. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen, right? So that's not to say that there aren't going to be times in your following Jesus where you're not going to know what the next step is, but you're still following Jesus anyway, right? But rather, you have good reason to follow Jesus, even if you don't know what the next step is, right? So even though we don't know everything that's going to happen, right, we still have good reason to place our trust and faith in Jesus. And we can be certain, right, that he's not going to let us down, that his will is perfect, right, that these words are true, that his character is good, right? We might not know how that plays out. If you want to call that blind faith, I suppose that's okay. But our faith in Christ does not need to be totally blind, right? It is given with good reason, and it honors him, to have reason behind our faith. And so let's honor God for a moment with what we know the Bible to be, as we just discussed, but also something that we can know to be true. I'd like to share three verses that I think can help us do this. First, let's look to Psalm 36, 9. It says this, For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. For the wellspring of life is with you. By means of your light, we see light. I want to especially focus on that last part. By means of your light, we see light. If you're like me, that's a tad bit confusing. Uh, C.S. Lewis explains it this way. He says, I believe in Christianity as I, as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. And so God brings life to everything, including our ability to understand and see things. So how do we understand and see the one who gives us the ability to understand and see? Well, it may sound obvious, but God himself does. We don't have the ability to see on our own. Jesus himself confirms this idea uh, in the second verse that I want to share with you. is in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, when he says this, <clears throat> his interaction with Peter. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. When Peter under, shows understanding of who Jesus is, and who Jesus is, according to John 1.1, 1, 1, is, is the Word, right? The Word that has become flesh. Jesus responds by saying, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You don't know this because of your own flesh or anything else fleshly, which is really symbolic of, of anything in creation, right? You know this because of my Father in heaven. God reveals the truthfulness of his own Word. And, and for some of you, perhaps like myself, you might be thinking, Aren't we just saying that the Bible is true because the Bible says so? Um, and, and no, it, it may sound that way, but we're not. What we're saying is that we know the Bible is true because the God who provided it as well as provided our, under, our ability to understand and see things reveals himself to us in and through his word, his light, 
right? And once we see his light, the light that is Jesus, we now have the ability to see all of his creation, right? By, 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 <clears throat> by means of his light, we now see light. And so scripture is less like, uh, it's less like looking at a beautiful painting on a wall, right? And more like putting on glasses that allow you to see beauty in all paintings, right? Scripture is something that changes our perspective and God gives us that ability to see clearly. Let me illustrate it this way before moving on to our last verse. <clears throat> because I think the way that we view authority, for example, is a little bit distorted uh, only because we don't have a good example of an absolute authority, at least not in our world, because the only absolute authority is God himself. And so take the, the president of the United States, for example. Even though the president has an authority, uh, it's not really self-given, right? People are needed to, to give him his authority, right? Through voting, through the systems that we've created, whether it's in our country or in other countries as they elect their leaders, right? And so we then recognize their authority. We then abide by their authority. But we also have a part in affirming their authority, right? Without people, there is no authority. Uh, it doesn't work that way with God. If people were needed to affirm God's authority for it to be true, then God wouldn't be absolutely authoritative, right? We can recognize his revealed authority, right? We can know that he's authoritative, but we don't have any part in determining it or affirming it. It's more like that, for example, of a father and a child relationship, right? The child doesn't choose his parent. Uh, the, the child plays no part in the authority their father has over them as their parent. Um, but just because they don't have a part in determining their authority doesn't mean that a good father wouldn't still reveal his authority to them, right? Reveal his parental identity. And so it is with God. But even this illustration breaks down a little because suppose you grew up with no father. <coughs> you could probably do some research, pull some hospital records, discover you know, who your father was, or even if you know who your father is, but you want more proof, you could still use that information to confirm right, that they're actually your parent, that they actually at one point in your life held authority over you. But here's what I'm saying in regards to God and his word. Only he could be the one to reveal its truthfulness. Nothing exists outside of him to fact check. There are no hospital records. There is nothing else to affirm his authority other than him himself. And if there was, that thing, whatever it was to affirm him, would actually be the ultimate authority. Right, but because God's the sole and ultimate authority, he's the only one that can confirm and communicate and reveal that to us. And even if there was, it wouldn't be better proof than the living, breathing, eternal creator God to which we follow. Which leaves us with the final verse that I'd like to share, which is in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team up as we get ready to, to close our time together. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 to 11 says this, Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it is God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony within himself. 
The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us. Eternal life. And this life is in his son. Church, the, the Holy Spirit testifies within us to the truthfulness of Scripture. This testimony is greater than any human testimony or any other testimony that seeks to to prove the truthfulness of God and the truthfulness of His Word. And this testimony that the Holy Spirit provides and works in us, you can have. We can have. We don't have to question these words or doubt these words. We can know that they are true because the Spirit testifies to their truthfulness as, as in, on behalf of the only one that can testify their truthfulness, which is God the Creator, God the Father, God the Provider, God that not only gives us these words, but gives us our ability to read them and comprehend and understand. And so again, blind faith does not need to be the reason for your belief in Scripture, nor is it God-honoring. You can know with certainty, like we saw about faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, that God's word is true and is worthy of basing the entirety of your life around it. I hope that you do. I hope that you do. And the reason is, as the end of 1 John 5, well, 5.11 says, is not only does it tell us who testifies to the truthfulness of Scripture, but it also tells us what that truth is, which is that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. So if you're sitting here today and you don't know that truth or you doubt that there could be an absolute truth or or a truth that is as beautiful as a truth that God wants to communicate to you that you don't have to, 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 to be burdened by your sin any longer, you don't have to be wondering what good is out there in the world that you can strive for um, because God has, one, taken all the, 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 the payment for the debt that you have by the work of your own sinfulness in your heart, and he has cast it, Scripture says, as far as the east is away from the west, infinitely far away. Right? He has paid the debt on your behalf so it is no more. Right? So you don't have to walk around burdened any longer by the sin or, or not just sin of your own life, but the sinful consequences that you face because the world that we live in is a sinful world, right? But you also don't have to strive for goodness, right? In, in the things of this world and in, in life, hoping to find a good life for yourself, whether that's job or money or retirement or family or whatever it might be. Because scripture tells us that we've been given the greatest thing we could possibly have and there's nothing we could do to strive for it. Uh, we couldn't earn it, right? So th- to know that this is true is a total game changer, right? And it's true not just because somebody else told you it's true. It's not true just because I'm telling you it's true. It's true because, because God has made a way for you to know that it's true. He sent Christ into this world to be a living example of its truthfulness, only to then give you and I now that Christ is no longer bodily here on earth, He's given us the Holy Spirit to testify to its truthfulness. And so we don't have to wonder. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to just kind of, you know, hope. There's this this wager called Pascal's Wager that basically says that 
you know, if you, if you bet on Christianity being true and you're wrong, um, you, you don't lose that much, right? But if you bet on Christianity to be false and you're wrong, you lose everything. And so it makes the point that you might as well just bet on Christianity, right? And it's, it makes logical sense to me and maybe make logical sense to you, but we don't have to just bank on it, right? We can know that it's true with certainty, by the power of the Holy Spirit that God has provided for us here and now today. And with the, the, the knowing of the certainty of this book, it will change every facet of your life for the better. Where you don't have to lean on your own desires anymore. You don't have to worry about what the outcome is going to be if you follow this. You follow it, not, not blind to what, what the, the, the consequence might be, but not blind to its reliability not blind to its truthfulness. And so I hope that this has given you some comfort and encouragement in knowing that there is validity to belief in this book, that every word in it is true and worthy of living your whole entire life for. And we're going to continue to talk about this over the next five weeks. What I want to do now is I want to, I want to close with a word of prayer and I want to invite you that if you have never, this invitation is going to look a little different. If you have never considered um, your reasoning for trusting this book, if you have never considered uh, whether this book is true, if your life is not currently being lived as if it is true, I want to invite you to, from the quietness of your own heart, pray, seek, and ask God to reveal this truth to you through the power of his Holy Spirit freely given to us today. Because I know if that happens, the gospel is in here. God's presence is in here. This book will lead us not just to salvation, but to, but to holy living as we await for that salvation to be manifested in eternity. And so we're going to pray, and I encourage you wherever you are to reflect on, on how much influence this book actually has on your life and pray and ask God to reveal it to you more and more and more. Let's pray.